That was worth the price of admission. Amen. Amen. Powerful words. And you know, Jesus really is reason enough. He is reason enough to give every ounce of effort and energy that I could for the sake of His glory and for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. This morning, I want, to, I want to talk to you about a subject that is one of the saddest realities in modern Christianity. Since the 1940s, the Ad Council has been the leading producer of public service announcements. But of the thousands of commercials that they've produced, one of their recent campaigns entitled Don't Almost Give may be the most powerful. One ad shows a man with crutches struggling to go up a flight of concrete stairs. And the narrator says these words, This is a man who almost learned to walk at a rehab center that almost got built by people who almost gave money. And after a brief pause, the announcer continues, Almost gave. How good is almost giving? About as good as almost walking. There's another ad that shows a homeless man curled up in a ball on a pile of rags. And one ratty bed sheet shields him from the cold. And the narrator says, this is Jack Thomas. Today, someone almost brought Jack something to eat. Someone almost brought him to a shelter. And someone else almost brought him a warm blanket. And after a brief pause, the narrator continues, and Jack Thomas, well, he almost made it. Through the night. And each, in, each ad ends with a simple and direct message don't almost give, give. Think about the word almost. It's a sad word in anybody's dictionary. It keeps company with words like if and nearly. It's a cousin to phrases like just about and should have. Almost is a word that smacks of missed opportunities. Olympian uh, Tim McKee was edged out for first place in the 400-meter race by two thousandths of a second. He almost won a gold medal. And I know this is probably going to get me crucified, but I'm a Kentucky Wildcats fan. Don't shoot. (laughs) Well, I didn't get booed out of the building, so that's all right. But now, very recently, back in the year 2015, Kentucky was 38-0 entering the Final Four, playing against Wisconsin. And I thought, man, they have a chance to go 40-0 and and be the first undefeated team since the 1976 Indiana Hoosiers. And you know what? They lost to Wisconsin in the Final Four. And it pains me to say that the Duke Blue Devils ended up winning that national title. But, uh, you know... The history books are not going to record the Kentucky Wildcats as an almost undefeated team. They're going to go down as a Final Four team, but it's not going to say they were almost undefeated. Because as they say, almost doesn't count except in horseshoes and hand grenades. You ever heard somebody say that? Almost. As disappointing as some things in life can be, nothing is more disappointing than someone who almost trusts the Lord. All throughout the Bible, we see people who almost committed to the Lord. Pharaoh almost listened to Moses on several occasions, but his heart ended up being hardened toward the Lord. Jonah 
which we learned about over the course of the last couple months, almost experienced the joy of the greatest Old Testament revival before having a temper tantrum while relaxing in the shade. Jesus called Himself the door, and Judas Iscariot himself kissed the door of heaven and almost got saved, but he ended up spending his life uh, on himself and missing out on eternal life. This morning, as we look at Acts 26, we see a man who almost got saved. And I want you to know that as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to see three different reactions to the gospel. Now, when you share the gospel with somebody, you're liable to get any one of thousands of reactions. But no matter how people respond to the gospel, they're only going to end up in one of two categories. They're either going to be saved or they're going to be lost. They're either going to spend an eternity in heaven or they're going to spend an eternity in hell. Because when it comes to Jesus Christ, Almost is not enough. You must place full faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, or you will end up like Agrippa in this passage of Scripture, almost persuaded. Well, let's take a look at the three reactions to the gospel in Acts chapter 26. The first response we see to the gospel is uh, found in verse 24. And here we see this principle... Some people absolutely reject the gospel message. Look at verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are besides yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. And so as Paul concludes his testimony here in Acts 26, Paul is wrapping up uh, his testimony, really, because in the first 21 verses of Acts 26, Paul shares his conversion story. He shares his story of coming to know the Lord. He starts by talking about his life before Jesus. He talks about his conversion experience. And then he talks about how Jesus Christ transformed his life. He sums up his testimony by saying he's not sharing a new message. He is sharing the exact same message that the prophets and Moses in the Old Testament shared, that Jesus Christ was going to come, that He would be the first to rise from the dead, and He would proclaim the light of salvation, not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well. And as Festus listens to this, he's had enough. And finally he blurts out and interrupts Paul and says, Paul, you're beside yourself. Your great learning is driving you insane. In effect, what Festus is saying to Paul is that, Paul, you've gotten so smart you're stupid. You ever known somebody like that? You ever known somebody? I mean, when I was growing up, I used to hear there was two kinds of intelligence. There was book smarts and there was street smarts. And a lot of the nerds and the bookworms that I went to high school with didn't necessarily have a vibrant personality, if you know what I'm saying. Now, when you think about the men who ran around with Jesus, you think about ignorant and unlearned men. We've already learned in Acts chapter 4 that the men that ran around with Jesus were fishermen and tax collectors. They were ignorant and unlearned men, but Acts 4.12 says the world stood up and took notice that they'd been with Jesus. Men who ran around with Jesus had a reputation for either being ignorant or unlearned or even hated. Because people didn't like tax collectors too much. How many of y'all pray for the IRS? I rest my case. So the people who ran around with Jesus 
had a reputation for not necessarily being the sharpest tools in the woodshed. Amen? But Paul was not like that. Paul sat at the feet of the greatest philosophers of the day, the greatest counselors of the hour. Paul was an intellectual man. He learned from the very best. And Festus is saying, Paul, you've gotten so smart you're stupid. You've gotten so brilliant you've lost all your common sense. What are you saying? This Jesus man, this is the message of the Old Testament? Now, Paul is standing in the middle of a great amphitheater in the city of Caesarea Maritima, which is in the northwest corner of Israel overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. And I can imagine as... Paul stands in that great amphitheater. And as Festus interrupts and virtually insults Paul and says, Paul, you've gotten so smart you're stupid, that people chuckled and laughed. And I can imagine those chuckles reverberating through that great amphitheater. And I can imagine that the Apostle Paul was just a little bit tempted to be embarrassed. You know, it's not always comfortable taking a stand for Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're going to give your life for the gospel, you're going to be in potentially embarrassing and ridiculing situations. It's not always going to be hunky-dory living your life for Jesus Christ. You know, we talk about how Jesus changed my life and everything is great. And I tell you what, the Lord's done a great work in my life. But you know what I'm doing right now? I'm reading through a book, and there's a chapter in there that's entitled, How to Minister to People Who Hate Your Guts. There's a price to pay for serving the Lord and serving the Lord faithfully. I guarantee you. Our pastor's not here this morning, but I guarantee you there's people in this church who hate his guts. You know why? Because I'm not stupid. I've been around the block a time or two. I'm only 37 years old, and if you want to consider me a young whippersnapper, you go right ahead. I'll let you believe that. But I've been around long enough to know that there's a price to pay for serving the Lord faithfully. But I want you to know that Paul, after he gets insulted by this powerful politician... He doesn't respond in the flesh. Now, I'll be honest with you. Somebody wants to make fun of me, my flesh is going to rise up. If this would have been me, I'd have said, All right, Festus, come down from there and let's knuckle up. We'll see how big of a boy you are. Paul didn't do that. Notice Paul's response in verse 25. He said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth, and reason. You want to know a sign of spiritual maturity in your life? When people who hate you or insult you, when you can respond to those people in love. Think about that. Because you see, when we get insulted, when we get put in uncomfortable situations, when there's a price to pay for the gospel message, we have a tendency to look in the mirror. I want to look at me. Who do you think you are talking to me like that? And you know what the mark of the Apostle Paul's life was? Nothing could detract him from his purpose 
to see souls saved. You see, Paul was not going to let this little insult sidetrack him from the fact that he wanted to win this man's soul. He wasn't going to allow a little insult to deter him from continuing to respect and love this man. This is a soul winner at work. This is a classic passage on perseverance in evangelism. But you know, Festus absolutely rejected the gospel message. And so Paul, rather than taking the insult, going for the bait, responded with respect, but notice what he did. He transitions his attention from this man who absolutely rejects the gospel and he focuses on somebody else who might be receptive to the gospel. Do you see that? Look at verse 26. For the king. You see, he transitions his attention to the king. This is King Agrippa. And he said, the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. What things is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament message of the gospel, the thing that Moses and the prophets said would come that Christ would suffer, that He would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim the light of salvation to the whole world. And so he says, the king knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. The gospel message was known. The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ was known all throughout Asia Minor and really to the uttermost parts of the earth, even at this time. And so, in verse 27... He actually asks a very pressing question. He just comes right out and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Now, this is absolutely brilliant conversation. This is a brilliant tactic by the Apostle Paul. Because what he's doing is, in essence, backing Agrippa into a corner of decision. You see, King Agrippa was over a vast territory. And uh, a significant part of his territory was occupied by Jewish people. And so he was familiar. He probably wasn't a Jewish scholar, but he was very familiar with historical Judaism, with cultural Judaism, and certainly with political Judaism. And so uh, a significant number of his constituents, shall we say, were Jewish people. But a significant part of his constituency was also uh, secular people or Gentiles. And so the Apostle Paul was saying, look, do you believe what the prophets are saying or do you not believe? And then Paul qualifies that question by saying, I know that you believe what the prophets said. And so King Agrippa is in a position here where he has to either say, yes, I believe the prophets, or no, I don't believe the prophets. You see, if he would have said, yes, I believe the prophets, then all of the Gentiles would have risen up and said, hold on a second, you're, you're going to be a Christian? What's up with this? But if he would have said, no, I don't believe the prophets, then the Jews in his constituency would have risen up and would have revolted. So he's in a politically uh, precarious position here. And rather than take one side or the other, he does what the master politician does. He takes a middle ground road and he tries to play both sides of the fence. You ever known somebody like that? 
You know, the problem with that is that some things you can't take a middle ground road on. You know, I, it, it amazes me how many people want to buy into this relativism that we see propagated at liberal universities all over the place. I mean, I just it, it bothers me. Because you know what? If you want to say that some things are true for me, but other things are true for you, why don't you go to a bank and see how well that goes over? Now, I'm depositing this $20 bill, but my truth is that that's $2 million. And so I need you to credit my account with my truth of $2 million. See how well that goes over at Citizens Bank next time you go. All right? Some things you can't take a middle ground road on. And what we see in verse 28 is a second reaction to the gospel. And here we see that some people almost receive the gospel. Look at what Agrippa says in verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You know, I think this might be the saddest verse in the entire Bible. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. You know, I looked up that word almost in the dictionary. And you know what it means. I don't have to tell you. But some of the synonyms that it gave were middle ground or neutral. You know what Agrippa is in essence saying to Paul? He's trying to take a politically neutral response or a politically neutral position with regards to the gospel message, but you can't do that when it comes to Jesus Christ. Hey, you can be neutral on a lot of positions in society if you want to be, but one thing that you can never be neutral on is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. And when you stand before Him, if you say, Jesus, I almost accepted you, He'll say, you almost got into heaven. Folks, that's sad. Some people almost receive the gospel. But you want to know what I find even more heartbreaking than lost people almost receiving the gospel? I find it very heartbreaking that professing Christians live like they almost receive the gospel. We've argued about a lot of things in business meetings here at Moundsville Baptist Church. I've never once participated in a business meeting here where we argued about the best way to get the gospel to lost people. You know what that says? We almost receive the gospel. Because you see, if you truly possess the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to want other people to have what you have. Can I get a witness? Some people almost receive the gospel. And you know what else struck me about verse 28? It's not just that Agrippa almost received the gospel, but he said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. The King James Version says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You know, a Christian is something that you become. And you can become a lot of things in this world. I mean, I could rattle off a million. You can become a drug addict. You can become a car salesman. 
You can become a deacon or a preacher. You can become a student of the Bible. You can become a teacher. You can become a meteorologist. You can become a carpenter. You can become a brother or a sister or a spouse. But the only thing that makes any difference in eternity is whether or not you become a Christian. And so I want you to know right where you're sitting, no matter what you have become in life, whether people look down on you because you've made bad choices, or whether people celebrate you because you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, the bottom line is, is that you need to look in the mirror and say, have I become a Christian? And if you have not become a Christian, today you can do so. It's as simple as saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I believe Jesus died for me and that He rose from the grave, and I ask You to forgive me of my sins, and I want to live in a relationship with You. It's that simple. Have you become a Christian? Some people absolutely reject the gospel message, but some people sadly almost receive the gospel message. And as we look at verse 29, we see a third reaction to the gospel. And here we see some people already represent the gospel. (laughs) Look at verse 29. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Oh, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of irony, really. Because Paul, Paul is trying to win the souls of these powerful political figures. Let me ask you a question. I know there's a lot of people in churches that like to talk trash about politicians. And since I'm of the conservative persuasion, I know a lot of people who talk trash about President Obama, both before and after he left office. But I'm just kind of curious how many people would share the gospel with him if they met him in person. The Apostle Paul had the guts to stand in front of these politicians and say, You need Jesus! And then Agrippa tried to give him the politician's answer, and Paul looked him right in the face and said, I would to God that not only you, but everyone here today would become just like me. And then he looks down at his shackled wrists... And he realizes the irony. And he says, I wish you'd be like me, except for the chains. You know, the irony of the situation is that the most liberated man in that auditorium was the man who was shackled up in handcuffs. Psalm 146.7 says, The Lord gives freedom to prisoners. Can I get a witness? You can be shackled up or in prison. You want to know something? And, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I've been going to Northern Correctional Facility, and I've been doing prison ministry over there for the last few months, and I'm going to tell you something. There is an anointing in that place. These men are seeking after God. And it's really sad that there's a greater anointing in prison than in some of the churches I go to. But you know what that tells me? That, that shows me that as long as you've got the Lord, not even prison can shackle you up. You can be behind bars and still be liberated through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm having a good time preaching today. I'm telling you, man. I mean, the gospel is real. 
And you can be in handcuffs and still be free. Isn't that good? What does it mean when Paul says, I wish that you would become like me, both almost and altogether? You see, that, my friend, being altogether persuaded, that's what I want for myself and all of my brothers and sisters here. I'm telling you, if we as a church were altogether persuaded, we wouldn't have to beg people to come to church. There would be an anointing that was flowing through this place that would be magnetic. People would drive by and they would feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they would say, you know what, I've got to go in that church and find out what's going on. You, you can tell me that I sound like some charismatic Pentecostal lunatic if you want to, and that's fine. But I'm telling you, the power of God is real, and I'm not afraid of the power of the Holy Spirit, whether you call me Baptist or Southern Baptist or any other denominational moniker that you want to give me. The power of the Holy Spirit is essential for transformation. And I've got to give what I've been given. I mean, Peter said that at the gate, beautiful. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give unto you. (laughs) That's a good moniker for everyday evangelism. I don't have any silver or gold. You can look at my bank account and you can say, this guy, he's underpaid for sure. But what I have, I give to you. Right? Amen. Well, altogether persuaded. What does it mean to be altogether persuaded? I want to close by telling you about one of my heroes in ministry. And if you have trouble categorizing me once I tell you this, you ain't going to be able to put me in any kind of box. Because people talk about ministry heroes, and a lot of y'all know my favorite preacher is Adrian Rogers. And uh, I've got a lot of the same heroes that a lot of people in seminaries have. I love Billy Graham, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, Lottie Moon. But one of the unsung missionary heroes of the 20th century is a woman by the name of Louise Chapman. She was a Nazarene missionary. A Nazarene missionary. But you know what? After she passed away, people looked through some of her belongings that she left behind, and she had a life mission statement written on one of the tablets in her personal possessions. And on it were words that I think encapsulate what it means to be fully persuaded and sold out to Jesus Christ. And here's what she said. She said only one out of every 50 people in this world know exactly who they are in Jesus Christ. One out of 50. That's 2%. And she said if you want to be understood by the 2% of the people in this world, you'll be misunderstood by the other 98%. Now some of you, that already eliminates you because you're worried about what they think. But she wrote, I've chosen to become a part of the fellowship of the 2%. The die's been cast. I've stepped out of the comfort zone. The decision's been made. I am a Christian. I won't look back, let up, slow down, or back away. My past is forgotten. My present is focused. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, cheap excuses, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, position, promotion, promises, or popularity. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be recognized. I don't have to be praised, regarded, or rewarded. I've died to the self-centered, ego-driven, limp-lipped lifestyle. I live by faith, learn by submitting, 
Labor by love, lead by example, and lift by prayer. My dream is developed, my decision definite, my desire determined, my discipline dedicated, my devotion distinct. My face is set, my pace is fast, my road is narrow, and my way is tough. But my companions are strong, my counselor is reliable, my purpose is pure, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, delayed, or denied. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder in the pull of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, shut up, or let up until I've stirred up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and stood up for the name of Jesus Christ. I must fight when others faint. Go when others won't. Give till I drop. Teach till all know. And work until the task is finished. And when I lie exhausted on the plain field of God's children, my Heavenly Father won't have any trouble recognizing me as one of His own. I would to God that we would have that kind of persuasion. The Upper Ohio Valley Baptist Association is a ministry of 22 churches across 10 counties in three states. 444,000 people live in those counties. Just a tad over 51,000 are considered evangelical. What does that mean? That means that in a 10-county radius, over 390,000 people are lost and on their way to hell. And the reality is right now, some of us are concerned about where we're going to lunch rather than where these people are going to spend eternity. You know what we need? We need a wake-up call. Because I believe that if we were to look in the mirror and be honest, we would say, Ah, I am just like Agrippa. Almost. Persuade.